Welcome back to Many Windows, a podcast about education for everyone interested in education. My name is John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and co-host, Jennifer McGlemory. Jennifer. Hi, nice to see you. And you. It's been a while. It has. Yeah. Not too long. I guess it depends on where this episode is going to fall in the series. <laughs> yeah, we haven't quite sorted that out yet. Uh, you know, dear, we may have uh, seen each other recently, but <laughs> right, right, yeah, um, uh, dear, dear listeners, um, Jennifer and I were were scheduled to record. This is this is a, you know the third episode in in the sequence that we've made them for this third season of Many Windows, but uh, I. Uh, had a uh, kidney stone uh, when Jennifer was uh, scheduled along with me to to do our first couple of episodes of this season and I was just debilitated so I said you got to proceed without me because I don't know how long this thing is going to go so this is our first time recording together the way that we normally do yeah exactly yeah so that's nice um and uh you know it's a uh uh, it's a balmy 97 degrees here in uh, in the California desert, and uh, it looks to me, Jennifer, like you've got uh, perfect California weather as well. Yeah, it's a little warm for, you know, the beginning of April. I'm not ready for it to be summer yet, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and um, our, our guest today, Dr. Erin McNellis, the department chair in English at uh, the school that we both share, TVT Community Day School in Irvine, uh, is in Long Beach. So we've formed a bit of a Bermuda Triangle here of, uh, <laughs> of California weather. And Erin, uh, how are you? I'm well. Uh, here in Long Beach, it's about 72 degrees. It's beautiful. <laughs> Perfect. I like to put these things in at the beginning to make all of our East Coast and Canadian <laughs> listeners jealous. Um, they like so, to hear us complaining about warm weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find it really helps to keep the subscription numbers high, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Why, why are our numbers dropping all over Canada and, <laughs> and throughout the Arctic uh, regions? Oh, well, John shot his mouth off again. Um, so, Aaron, uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about uh, teaching books with problematic language, you know, kind of racist or homophobic or what have you, uh, you know, language. And before we get into that, um, share a little bit with the audience, sort of your own, you know, your own background, how you came to find yourself as a K-12, a teacher in a K-12, you know, in 2021. Give us a little bit of your details. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm originally from New Jersey and I came out to Southern California to attend UC Irvine for graduate school in English. Uh, my original plan was to teach in higher ed, but there are no jobs in higher ed. <laughs> um, and um, also the kind of teaching I had been doing in higher ed as an adjunct was like sort of introductory composition work. Um, and though I even was able to get a full-time job as a lecturer doing that at UCI, um, it was starting to feel kind of unfulfilling because I would get a kid and they would be a reader or not, a writer or not. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I also at UCI, I only had them for 10 weeks at a time. Um, yeah. And so I'd be like, well, you know, good luck <laughs> after 10 weeks. Um, 
And so I came to K-12 education, um, A, for you know, a better salary, um, but B, um, it's really allowed me to connect with kids much more meaningfully, um, to have them for a whole year. And at our school, many of them I have two years, because um, you know, it's so small. I teach most of the ninth and 11th graders. Yeah, um, this, is the great, this is the great advantage to being in a small high school. Right. Right, that you get, you get not 10 weeks, but you know, 38 weeks. And right. if you're lucky, you get, you get them twice. Right. right. Um, mm-hmm. And so you really get to, to chart the, you know, the journey. Right. And you get to build readers and build writers. Right. Because yeah. you're working from previously unworked clay, as it were, you know, if you're in higher ed, they've already gone through a high school experience and they bring all of that baggage with them. Right. right. Whereas, you know, a typical ninth grader, is is going to be much more, uh, you know, kind of work a little more easily with, right? As yeah. a former middle school English teacher, I'd like to say we do some work with them in middle school, by the way. <laughs> I think even my elementary school colleagues might say they even try and teach them a few things in elementary school. <laughs> it's true. Jennifer, you... My They're sensing first, and then they go right to ninth grade, huh? Yeah, my, 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 my sensing anything there? No, come on, Jennifer. You know what I mean. <clears throat> there, there's, you know, by the time you get through high school, right? There's a there's a level at which you know some students think, well, you know, kind of I'm done, right? You know, yeah. The cookie's I think it's baked, really you know? cool. We've done, you know, in my different aspects of my career, you know, we've done some looping, which is where kids have the right. same two years, but. It's so interesting. I would love to have that experience of like nine and 11 or ninth and 12, you know, and really you cap kids at two really kind of different times in their lives. And when they first come to high school and then as they really start to mature and or you know, junior year being such an important year and they're thinking about college. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and Jennifer, you know, you and I've talked at, uh, at, at length across multiple episodes about the, you know, the notion that if you get kindergarten wrong, you've, you've built in some things that you're going to have to fix, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, tr- you know, lots of love to our lower school and uh, middle school colleagues, you know, for the work that they, that they do that prep students for the kind of work that Erin gets a chance to do in, you know, in her high school classroom. So, so we're talking about literature today, we're talking about reading, right? And, you know, one of the things that you know, kind of we experience in our our English classrooms. I taught English, you know, 20 years ago, but is that there's this sort of pre pre-understood or or kind of received wisdom, a quote unquote, a literary canon, right? That includes within it texts that have problematic language, right? And you know, I'm wondering, you know, as a you know, as a doctorate holder in in English literature, right? You know, what your thoughts are as a K-12 educator with a doctorate on the value of the literary canon and sort of to what extent it has or doesn't have a value anymore in 2021? Yeah, um, I mean, 
I think that for one thing in an English class, like the, the biggest thing that we're doing is giving them skills. Um, and so to a certain extent, I think it doesn't matter that much what specific texts they read as long as they have an opportunity to develop those skills. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, I think there is value to um, having a certain sort of shared cultural understanding, like being able to, um, you know, to like being able to read something like Shakespeare that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years. One of the ways I kind of sell Shakespeare to my students is like, isn't it interesting that this guy's been read for 400 years? That like people keep coming back to him um, and keep finding, you know, meaningful stuff here. Like there's, you know, there's human consensus that there's something of value here. So let's try to see what that is. Um, right. And then there's also the fun of like being able to get the great Gatsby references in a Taylor Swift song, like, you know, um, right, right. like being able to see certain literary illusions is cool. Um, but yeah, I think that um, for the most part in English education is about developing the skills of reading and the skills of writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't need to be tied to specific things. Yeah. We don't need to be, um, kind of locked in mm -hmm. right that that the goal is is reading for its own sake right and that you can you can advance the needle on that question with lots right. of different texts yeah right right um and i guess another thing i'll say about it is that um in in my american lit class in particular one of the things i'm interested in is like what is the american like ethos and like how mm. is that over time um, and uh, you know and and so to a certain extent canonical works can help us see that um, yeah. so like we start by looking at stuff like the Declaration of Independence and the like Puritan sermons right and sure. like, those reflect values of the time that are you know worth learning about and thinking about and how they inform the present yeah I mean as a person who grew up in New England and you know in the Plymouth Colony, you know, no backsliding Massachusetts Bay, half Puritans, you know, are my people, right? You know, that I can read those Jonathan Edwards sermons from what, 1630, 1635, something like that. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that isn't, that isn't historical. That's, that's yesterday, you know, mm -hmm. for, for me. So yeah, the, the fact that these think that, a, that a canon can reveal an ethos, right, mm -hmm. you know, is a, is a really important, uh, you know, an important point. Don't abandon it for the sake of abandoning it, right? But some of these books, you know, have um, language of their day that is now kind of problematic. So can you, can you think of a story around one of these texts that, uh, you know, that has racially offensive language that you've had students read in the past and sort of how the experience of teaching it and what they got out of it was? Yes. Um, so for about five years in my American Lit class, I taught Huckleberry Finn. Mm, yeah, um, the classic. Right, exactly. Right. Which is a great book and super interesting, um, but it contains the N-word over 200 times, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, and that's something that um, I need to address and I need to prepare my students for. Um, and so what I would do is before we even touch the book, I would spend a whole class period on the N-word um, talking about its history to a certain extent. Um, but the main thing was just to kind of like get all of the um, like, like possibly unsaid stuff said, um, so that, and, and sort of establish ground rules. 
Um, so I had an activity which I did not invent. I got it from some teacher's guide um, to Huck Finn years ago, um, where I had uh, four statements where students would say, uh, they would rank from like strongly disagree to strongly agree. Um, and then they would pick one to free write about for about 10 minutes. Um, and then I would use this as like the basis of conversation. And I happen to have that in front of me. Um, so uh. the, the four statements are, um, number one, some words are so offensive that they should never be used to tell a story. Uh, number two, the names we use for others are not important. Uh, number three, uh, the saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but word will, words will never hurt me is true. Um, and number four, members of a racial or ethnic group can refer to themselves with language it would be inappropriate for others to use. Um, so I would have students sort of, um, yeah, pick one of those that they feel most strongly about, you know, write about it. Um, and then we sort of walk through the statements as a class um, to kind of get it all out there. Um, and uh, what I, in addition to that, um, I didn't want my word as like a white lady to kind of be the last word. Um, so I also found some videos of, um, like YouTubers of color. Um, and there's a great video by ta Coates where he explains, um, why white people can't say the N word. Um, and his explanation is, um, is that it's all about context. He says that, um, you know, his, his wife can call him honey, but a random woman on the street can't call him honey because that would be weird, right? Um, and the N-word is no different. Like their context matters. Um, and uh, right, and so what I say to my students is like, yeah, right, context matters. This is a classroom. Um, and, you know, for all these reasons that we've talked about, this is a word that we're not gonna say out loud in the classroom. Um, I. Uh, I don't, of course, teach the the censored version of Huck Finn, right? That 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 text exists where they replace the N word with the word slave, um, and mm. I feel like that is a pretty questionable decision, because um, I think the word is there for a reason. Like it is there because um, you know uh, Twain is reflecting the racism of, of his time, right? Uh, and I think it, it it's actually kind of important for students to have like the visceral experience of like seeing the word, you know, it does, it feels sort of violent, you know, to us today to see the word over and over again. Um, right, so yeah, I don't teach a, a censored version of the text and I give students the choice whether to write the word out or censor it in their own writing. Um, but I say that we can't say it out loud in class. How has that gone over? Um, fine, mostly. Um, and notably, it has gotten better in the last couple of years. So I first was teaching the text about five years ago, and I did get some pushback. Um, perhaps uncoincidentally, that was like when Trump was running for and winning his election. Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, and so I think there may have been more of a sort of like permissive cultural milieu around some of that for some people. I don't know. That's just a I guess. Um, but um, it also may just be that, you know, youth are evolving and getting more um, uh, aware of this kind of stuff. Because in the last two or so years, um, no pushback at all. Almost everybody's on the same page. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emerging evidence, uh, you know, in the kind of big data sociological research that this generation C has very, very different values. Uh, you know, across these, you know, you know, these lines that maybe, um, you know, you, Aaron, as a 
sort of older millennial and me as a kind of younger generation X, uh, you know, or not a younger generation X, I suppose, you know, that, that our framework, our milieu is just different, right? Mm -hmm. That these Generation Z kids don't, it seems very little tolerance for, um, you know, for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, our, in our district, we've just been going through um, this very question in a lot of depth because we had some parents bring to our board that um, many of the books that were required reading all the way from sixth grade through 12th grade um, were derogatory to students of color, particularly black students, used the N-word, and they and students came forward and said that they were being traumatized in class because when other students saw the N-word or sometimes heard it, particularly when spoken by someone in authority, that then other students in the class, it almost seemed to give them permission to use it themselves, so, right? So that was a real important piece of um, what we were learning about as I was actually part of a committee that had to review these complaints against um, a number of books, which I think is, is we addressed this in the first two episodes, some of these books, I'll, I'll tell you, Aaron, but The K, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, um, uh, uh, Huck Finn, um, and even there were some questions about, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, the theme of just the white savior, you know, and, and the fact that like in, in our district, you know, they were just going from reading The K in sixth grade to Roll of Thunder in seventh grade to then Huck Finn to, uh, of mice and men to, you know, and it was just always a traumatizing story about people of color. You know, where, where's the celebration? Where's the, the balanced approach, right? Uh, representation. So um, our superintendent came down and said, we're not gonna have books with the N word uh, read uh, as our as our required reading, there, it actually went. I think on national news that Burbank was banning books, but actually, actually, we were just removing them from. We had like two novels a year that were required, and we just took those off and are looking for the first time in thirty years at what other books have been written in the last two hundred years that we might want to read uh, with students. So it's been a really interesting journey um, to. It's even as, you know, as an English teacher, things that I hadn't as a middle school English teacher spent a lot of time thinking about up till now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, to your point about um, the sort of traumatizing narratives of people of color, um, right, I always followed up Huck Finn with a unit on the Harlem Renaissance because um, I would uh, I, I was doing sort of chronologically through American history and so I wanted a unit of um, black people writing in their own voices telling their own stories you know some of which are are you know of necessity going to be sad but you know many of which were more celebratory um, yeah and then I think you have to you do have to be careful with broad strokes because then what about people of color writing their experience and using some of this language, right? We're not going to necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I do think I, I love the way that you've described how you handle it when you come across um, N-word in a piece of literature. And when you're faced with like, am I going to read this aloud? Are our students going to read this aloud? I would just picked up a book called Letting Go of Literary Whiteness. 
and it has in it um, a, a page that's called uh, a proactive approach to discussing the n-word and it talks about step one step two step three steps four and step five and it's so like what you've described Aaron preparing the students you know before you even start reading the book preparing the students having the students write you know a, about certain prompts and discussing some of the research and history of the word. So I love, you know, all the things that you said. I just wanted to mention it because in case people wanted to have a little more um, information, somewhere to go and look and read about it. I think it's a great book for some of the things that we're talking about today. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, another step I guess I should mention is that um, this year for the first time at TVT, I have a black student in my American Lit class. Um, and so I made sure to talk to her before we had the class discussion because <laughs> um, I didn't want her to be blindsided by it. Um, I wanted to make sure that she would know that I was not going to put her on the spot, that she could feel free to speak from her experience, but I wasn't going to like, you know, require her to do that. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to do if you're going to teach a book like that. That's yeah, for one sure. Thing, one thing that we heard from our students in Burbank, because we have a very, we have a small population, we're maybe about 7% African American. But that, so that was the black students experience is they are one of, you know, only a couple of black students in the class. And as soon as anything is brought up having to do with slavery, or, you know, just the African American experience, they felt everyone looked at them in class to kind of like see what their reaction was or, you know, as the like one token representative of that entire culture. And I can imagine, particularly for middle schoolers, how difficult that would be to just feel that in class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I was definitely concerned about it, but this particular student is, uh, has no problem with it, like seems fine and was delighted that I was gonna be addressing race in class and you know, thought that it had been, um, that it like in 11th grade that this was the first time this was happening. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she, she was grateful it was happening at all. Um, so yeah, I was fortunate in, in that way that yeah, she, she feels fine about the whole thing as far as I can tell, as far as she's sharing with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this sounds like really good advice that other teachers might take if they're going to encounter these kind of texts, you know, in their, uh, you know, in their curriculum. Well, what are some other suggestions or tips, Aaron, that you would give to teachers encountering these, these texts or you making the proactive decision to include them, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have much else to say. I think, yeah, it is really important to talk to your students of color ahead of time and privately, yeah. right? Um, to take their temperature to right do the sort of things I described. Um, yeah, I I mean otherwise I think just just trying to be sensitive about it, um, trying to make sure students understand the sort of gravity of your own opinion about it, um, and and like involving them, telling them about the history I think is important too. Um, yeah, and I, as I mentioned earlier, also um, in, since I'm a white person, letting some of the the sort of policy statements come from people of color, you know, via YouTube, because that's what I have to do, um, seems like the right move. Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I and a, a number of our colleagues and students are reading uh, Ijoma Olua's. So you want to talk about race, you know, and 
you know, her, her perspective is you're never authorized to say it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that feels on the money for me, you know, Aaron, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Right. Right. It's a word that's been used as a tool of oppression for centuries. And so, right. It is not my place to say it. It seems just very straightforward to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that ta Coates talks about is that um, he, it, he says that, uh, that, white people like experiencing this restriction of like, I can't say that word. He says that they react with like, well, I invented that word. <laughs> like that word is mine. <laughs> like, why can't, why can't I say it? Um, and his spin on it is, well, you can't. And maybe this will give you the tiniest sliver of insight into what it's like to be a black person because to be a black person is to walk through a world where there's stuff you can't do. Um, and right, here's a societal uh, you know, limit that you have to encounter as a white person, and maybe that'll be good for you. Yeah, yeah. What changes have you made in the time that you've been teaching high school to the, you know, to the books? Um, well, especially in this American Lit class, I've made a conscious effort to include more writers of color. So one thing I did this year was I stopped teaching Huck Finn, um, and I replaced it with Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Um, yeah, rock on. The N word, um, but far less often. Um, and uh, serves a similar purpose of like uh, trying to like illuminate the history of slavery. An issue that we have in our particular school is that students, um, they get American history in eighth grade and then not again until 11th or 12th that sort of goes back and forth. Um, so my 11th graders in my American Lit class have not had American history in many years and they got the eighth grade version of American history. Right. So it's often news to them how bad slavery actually was, like even though that seems kind of crazy to contemplate. Um, so like when I taught Huck Finn, for example, I would include um, uh, excerpts from uh, Olaudo Equiano's The Slave Ship and I would include excerpts from uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, that passage about the middle passage. Mm. Um, it, like to give them a sense of like, yeah, this was very bad, right? Because um, kids reading Huck Finn need to know that at the end when Tom Sawyer is like messing around and, you know, taking forever to liberate Jim that like it's a, you know, he's risking something very serious by um, risking Jim being like captured back into slavery. Yeah. Um, Right. So yeah, I, that, that's one change I've made. I also used to teach uh, Death of the Salesman in was a, the whole class is kind of structured around the idea of the American dream, um, which is normal, I think, for a lot of high school uh, American lit classes. Um, and sort of who has had access to it over the, the centuries and what does that mean and how has it changed and evolved. So right, I used to teach uh, Death of a Salesman because it's kind of the classic American dream text. Um, but I've since replaced that with um, an immigrant story, um, a novel called Before We Visit the Goddess by uh, Chichiro Devakaruni Banerjee. Um, it serves a similar purpose um, in terms of what I'm trying to do with the class as a whole. Um, but that you know brings in a perspective of like yet another uh, ethnic group. Yeah, different kind of American voice. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Um, are there some books that are not sort of canon books that you think, hey, you know, teachers listening, here are two that I've adopted, but here are eight more or three more or whatever that I'm thinking about 
that I would love to find some way to use, you know, you know, based on your own, you know, breadth of reading or, you know, your own perspectives, right? What are some other books for teachers to, to look into? Well, are we talking specifically about like books of authors of color or just sort of any um, canonical or non-canonical well, books? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would think that if your perspective was that there was uh, a book that would resonate for, you know, for a classroom, but it was written by a white author or, or, or not, that that would be fine. Mm -hmm. um, one book that I think is really interesting, but that I've never personally found a way to teach um, is Jennifer Egan's The Keep. Um, hmm which uh, is, it's like sort of a gothic novel. Well, it, it, it's operating in two different registers where um, the there's a guy in prison who is writing um, a novel and you also get the novel that he is writing. Um, and so it has this interesting kind of meta textual thing. And I think that it would hold students interest very well. Um, so that's one answer to that question. Um, yeah, I mean, th this novel that I just mentioned uh, before we visit the goddess is really good. Um, and it's one that I think other high school teachers should consider teaching. It's pretty short, which is imperative for high school. That's part of why I actually haven't taught the keep is that it's like over 300 pages or so, um, maybe closer to four. But before we visit the goddess is like maybe two or 250 pages. Um, and it is a multi-generational immigrant story um, following primarily a, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. Um, and their their lives are very intertwined. It uh, it like jumps back and forth in time. It has interesting symbolic references. Um, it's a great book. And I think more high school teachers should consider reading it. Um, it one thing about it is that it is written with a lot of free and direct discourse. So that's something I teach my students about. Um, and uh, what I'm having them do with it this year, this is my second year teaching it, is I'm having them compare a character's view of themselves with other characters' views of them. Because um, this is, I think, one of the central um, themes of this novel is that uh, each of these women like misunderstands the others and their relationships with, the, with each other. So a lot of mother-daughter drama, um, right? You don't, uh, you know, you don't know what's right for me uh, kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. What books, what books do you teach in ninth grade out of curiosity? Um, in ninth grade, one book I teach is uh, the new Emily Wilson translation of the Odyssey, which is super great, um, very accessible, um, but still very poetic. Um, I teach that to my honors classes. Um, to my non-honors classes, I start with um, what Marjane Satrapi's uh, Persepolis. Um, and I, I start with that, it, it's a world literature class. Um, I start with that with them uh, partially because having the, the graphic format, um, for one thing, it, it interests them. Um, but for another thing, it allows me to be very specific about like what is textual evidence, right? And so we look at the graphic evidence and also the, the words, but in that book, almost the graphic evidence is like more important even. Um, so, right, then I do a short story unit with um, stories from all over. Um, so like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, South African writer called Henrietta Rose Innes. Um, uh, lots of stuff in there. Uh, Shebe is in there. Um, 
Right. Um, then we do a nonfiction unit, which I actually pull that every year from the opinion pages of the New York Times, because um, I like to present them with like, look, people are writing right now, and this is what it looks like, right? Writing is not some abstract thing that we do um, for our teacher. And so that's the basis of a unit where they're writing essays for um, where like the intended audience is meant to be their peers. They have to write something like actually interesting for their peers to read um, with some research skills involved. Um, then we read Romeo and Juliet, um, and then a poetry unit where I also pull from all kinds of stuff. When you teach uh, Persepolis, uh, how much do you feel like you have to go into history and culture or, you know, cross over into becoming uh, a history teacher? And I ask that because I always felt that you were referring to this earlier. I always felt that when I was in seventh grade teaching Roll of Thunder, you know, the like you said, students aren't even getting to American history until eighth grade. I'm trying to teach seventh graders about Jim Crow laws. Yeah. And, you know, I felt like I had to be a history teacher for a few weeks just to develop the context for a book. Yeah. Would you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. For Persepolis, um, I, I used to have them do like sort of research projects pr prior to teaching Persepolis where I would give them different topics to research um, and have them sort of present the research to the class. The problem with that was that they really sucked at it <laughs> and their, their presentations would contain errors. And I eventually just gave up at that. Um, and now I like, I put on a documentary and you know pause it occasionally and we talk about it. And that's how I handle the history for Persepolis. Um, for, uh, but yeah, in my American Lit class, I very much do have to be a history teacher. And that was especially true um, this year when I was teaching Underground Railroad, um, because what Underground Railroad is, is like a sort of series of like set pieces that, um, around like different sort of horrors that black people underwent at various points in American history. Um, and so going into each chapter, I would have to be like, okay, here's background on lynching. Here's background on the Tuskegee experiment, like all these different things that came up. Um, that if I didn't tell them like this was real, they might not, you know, think that it was real. As I, I think about that book is that it is, it's magical realism, right? So um, he does play with history. He has things like happen in states that they didn't really happen. He, he says that like in North Carolina, um, like they outlawed all black people and that obviously never happened. Um, but in researching it, I found out that the state of Oregon was originally founded as a whites only state. Um, and so what I had to keep doing with that book was present to them like here's the kernel of historical truth that he's working with and make sure that they were very clear on what was real and what was like uh, massaged in that book because I didn't want them to walk away with sort of incorrect understandings. Yeah. I think it's um, it's it, that's part of the debate that we're having a little bit now and I think uh, for English teachers, like how, you know, what is the appropriate amount of, like when you choose a novel that requires so much uh, extra teaching around the time period or context, you know, is that the best use of your time, right? Like, the, mm -hmm. or, or how much is the best use? Is there something else that could be replaced with where you can really get into more of the uh, literature standards and things that you wanna cover and not have to spend so much time? But I don't know, it's, it's also hard to, tear away literature from the time period it was written in or written about. Right, right. And yeah, one of my not so secret goals is frankly educating them about race in America. Um, so, right. I mean, almost the whole first semester is spent on that between Underground Railroad and the Harlem Renaissance. 
Um, so I'm fine with it. I, I don't spend a ton of time. I would say um, that in the Underground Railroad, like maybe half, we have 70 minute class periods, maybe half a class period every three or four class periods as we're getting into a new section and there's a new topic they need to be taught about. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Uh, the book that I was referencing before about letting go of literary whiteness, it also talks about, you know, how to have those conversations because I think particularly, you know, uh, as a white person, we can tend to avoid conversations because we're uncomfortable with them, conversation about race, you know, and, um, and we have to just acknowledge that discomfort that we feel uh, as, and we have to um, expect and acknowledge inappropriate responses and comments and address them, right? Have you had anything like that happen in your classes, Erin? Um, inappropriate comments? Um, not really. Which is even I mean, uncomfortable, maybe? Uh, um, yeah, occasionally, um, like, Right. I mean, the, the biggest place that something like that would happen would be on that first day of talking about the N-word, right? Where, um, you know, in the past, like five or so years ago, I would have students pushing back fairly hard and saying things like, well, if they can say it, then, you know, there's no reason we can't, right? Um, yeah. And uh, with... Um, when teaching the Underground Railroad this year, um, and I, I had these moments where I was teaching about these different things that happened in the past, I would occasionally have a student um, like, well, yeah, so I guess one thing that comes to mind is when I was teaching about lynchings, um, I was framing it in primarily historical terms, but then one of my students was like, oh, they, and there have been lynchings recently um, on the news. And then another student jumped in, you know, with, um, well, you know, like the official report was that those were suicides and, um, and yeah, what, right, exactly. Was like, well, you know, like go read about it on your own, <laughs> you know, like people have different perspectives on this, but uh, yeah, like I had not especially prepared for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think that's what uh, can frighten teachers sometimes mm -hmm. is because we do like to feel prepared for all the things that might come up, right? Don't you, don't you spend time thinking, okay, what could go wrong with this lesson that I'm about to teach? <laughs> Yeah, of yeah, full like, stop. What am I going to do when, you know, this one kid that I know is going to try and derail this conversation or something like that? You know, I think we all spend a lot of time thinking about that. And then when those things pop up that we weren't expecting, sometimes, you know, you feel the like the whole class is looking at you. And uh, I think that's sometimes we are afraid to, particularly when we're talking about race or issues that are race related. Uh, as white people, we we just turn and run. And what I'm learning, what I'm working on myself is like, okay, what is the better response than just going like, oh, we're not going to talk about that. That's not appropriate for this class. Or, you know, let's get back on the lesson plan. That mm -hmm. those are really important teachable moments. But I think as you're starting that out, you're worried that you're going to stumble and make a mistake yourself and say something wrong or use language in the wrong way and you know you're worried that you're going to make things worse right yeah 
that's true. <laughs> I think we've all had that experience, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Or that's we've, why we've, we've inadvertently let something go one step further than we ought to have let it go. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh no, I, I should have seen this coming. Why, why didn't I, how did I get to this place? You know, where I appear to have authorized a, an open discussion about something I would never have, uh, you know, I would never consciously have led this conversation to this place. And now here we are. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's in this, in this book that I keep referencing, they talk about this strategy that's an acronym for navigating difficult moments. Mm -hmm. And it's called PAIRS, P-A-I-R-S, and each, you know, refers to the, so P is for pan, like pan the environment, you know, to notice like how are people reacting to this? How are people feeling? And then even having some question stems about like, well, I've noticed that, that some people or, or I notice I'm feeling this way. Is anybody else feeling that way? I think that's always good, right? To start with an I statement. And then the A is for ask about uh, specifics behind a person's comment. So if somebody, if someone says something a little off the wall, instead of just try immediately running from that kind of saying, could you tell us more about that? Or help me understand what you mean by that, right? Instead of running away from it, we drill down a little more and try and unpack it. And then eyes interrupt the dynamics, you know, let's slow this conversation down and talk about ju what just happened. Um, R is for relate to the person or the comment or the behavior. Like, yeah, I, I can relate to what you're saying. I felt the same way before. Does anybody else relate to that? And finally, the S is for share, share about yourself or disclose with a story or an example. So I thought that was kind of helpful. I earmarked that in this book um, for those of us who are, who are uh, trying to figure out how to navigate these situations. I thought that was kind of helpful. Yeah. Erin, as we come close to the end here, any, um, any last thoughts, tips, advice to, uh, to teachers, maybe young teachers or new teachers on, you know, having the courage to, to read challenging texts with their classrooms and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing is to try to be in communication with the students of color in your classroom, um, yes. and and to maybe do that like regularly, um, so that they know that like that it is okay to come to you if if you do like accidentally say something out of line or like something that makes them uncomfortable. Um, I think that is probably the the biggest. Uh, suggestion I would make. Um, and otherwise, I guess, try to like trust yourself and your intentions. And mm -hmm. you know, right, it is, um, it is a bit of a risk, but um, it, it can work. And I think it can be worth it. Um, I guess another thing that comes to mind is that you should know your school and know your culture. Because um, I'm in a lot of teacher Facebook groups, and people are always writing things like, oh, I had a parent complain about this. And now I have to find an alternate text or oh, my school won't let me teach that. And we don't have that at TVT. Right. Um, I can teach whatever I want. And it's fine. Um, a book I was thinking about teaching, but ultimately didn't. And this has come up partially because of your uh, canon question was uh, the Madonna of Echo Park um, by Brando Skyhorse, which um, has a lot of offensive language, not, not, um, 
not necessarily racially offensive language, but just a lot of swearing. Um, and I was talking to Jill about it, our principal and Jeff Davis, our head of school was, uh, happened to be in the room. Um, and he said, well, how old are the students that you're talking about here? And I said, 11th grade. And he said, not. <laughs> Um, and I, I didn't end up doing it for a variety of reasons, but I think we're blessed to be at a school that um, gives us this freedom and that trusts us um, to handle books like this. Erin, uh, if a listener wants to get in touch with you or sort of follow your work or what have you, how would they do that? Um, well, they could email me at uh, emcnellis, M-C-N-E-L-L-I-S at tarboot.com, T-A-R-B-U-T. Um, I do have a blog, although I write in it very rarely, um, which is uncomplicatedly.wordpress.com. That's sort of my random thoughts about, uh, my quasi-academic thoughts about pop culture-y things when I'm moved to write them. Um, I think that's probably about all that's worth it. I am on Twitter very occasionally at Dr. Underscore McNellis. And you got a book in the Amazon store, as I recall. Oh, that's true. Yes, right. I have a book that you can buy on Amazon called Impossible Loves. Um, it's a book of essays about um, like the ethics of attention uh, mm -hmm. that I wrote while I was in grad school as sort of a shadow dissertation. Stuff I was thinking about that wasn't my dissertation. Nice, <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. um, well, Aaron, thank you immensely for your wisdom, your thought, your time. And, um, and you know, listeners, we'll be back, uh, you know, in a few weeks with, uh, you know, another episode where we continue this conversation and start opening up the, you know, the frameworks out of, uh, out of race and into, you know, into other areas that uh, we think will be of interest to you. So thanks for listening. Thank you, and. Uh, Sorry, so nice to meet you, Aaron. See, yeah. we're out of practice. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, so until next time, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Bye.